Matthew chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse 23. There it says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you do not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the, vi of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him like dust, or scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people, because they considered him to be a prophet." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you, Lord, tonight asking, uh, Lord, for you to uh, help us to, Lord, see the glory of Christ. Lord, to not be like the scribes and Pharisees, who though they were in his presence, and though they saw his miracles and heard uh, his gracious words, yet they rejected the stone. Uh, Lord, but you have chosen him, and you have place Christ as the cornerstone of your church. And Lord, all of the household of God is built upon Him and what He has done. And so, Father, we pray that we would not be like them, Lord, in their unbelief, but rather that we would uh, see that He is the only way of salvation, that He is the only way in which we can uh, be reconciled to You, and Lord, be a member of Your household. Lord, we pray that we would uh, be faithful to You, Lord, not by mere lip service, Lord, as was that... Uh, one son, but rather that we would, Lord, do your will. Lord, go and work in your vineyard and do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Father, we pray tonight for you to teach us, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would enlighten our minds, Lord, that you would uh, write your word upon our very hearts, Lord, so that we might see in the scriptures the very glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember in Matthew uh, 21, this is when Jesus has made His way into Jerusalem. And this is leading up to uh, His arrest, His crucifixion, His burial, and His resurrection. All of this is taking place in the last week of His life. And during this time, uh, when He is in Jerusalem for the last time, there are many controversies and conflicts that he has with the leadership there, with the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, it shouldn't be surprising to us in the way that he is coming into the city. 
Right? Now, it's not surprising, not because Jesus is seeking to uh, cause a rift for no reason. What he's doing is good and proper and true. The reason that there's such hostility is because of their unbelief. It is the hardness of the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees, their unbelief, their unwillingness to see and admit who he is. That just as we read on Sunday from Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the apostle of God, the one uniquely sent by God to reveal the will of God to us, to teach us who God is and how it is that we can be reconciled to Him and how it is that we can do His will. And if we reject Christ, we are rejecting God the Father. And this is what these people had done. They claim to follow God. <clears throat> they honor Him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. These are the kinds of people that Jesus is dealing with in the scribes and Pharisees. They are religious hypocrites, self-righteous hypocrites who pretend to be children of God. They pretend to be children of Abraham. They pretend to be strict adherents to Moses, but they reject the very Son of God. They reject the true child or the true offspring descendant, the seed of Abraham. They reject the one that Moses spoke about that Moses told them would come, so they are not in line with these things. And so there is a rift and conflict between Jesus and between them. And this is because of their unbelief. But also the actions of Christ. He went in to the temple and He cleansed it. He cleansed it in opposition to them and what they were doing. So naturally this has caused uh, a conflict, a controversy between Jesus and between His enemies. His enemies, Jesus is in the right they are in the wrong. Yet there still is conflict and controversy as a result of these things. So these uh, interactions, these teachings that we have here are a part of this interaction that's taking place between Jesus, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And it begins with an issue of authority, which is really central to everything, right? The authority of who is our authority, right? Who are we listening to, right? Who is the one that can instruct us in the will of God? Do we depend on ourselves or are we depending on the Word of God? And who gave Jesus the authority to do the things that He's doing? That's the question that they are asking and that's what He brings to their attention. So let's pick up then in verse 23. Verse 23 says, When He entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to Him while He was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Here, He's in the temple, and the temple is the place, right, the one place where the will of God should be known more than any other place. Not that the teaching was restricted and the worship of God was restricted only to the temple, but this was the centerpiece in the Old Covenant during that time of the worship of God. The primary place where God was to be worshipped and where the people were to be instructed in the things of God, in who God was, how to be reconciled to Him, how to worship God, how to do and know His will. And that authority or that charge had been committed chiefly to the household of Aaron and to the tribe of Levi. They were the common teachers of the Bible, the ones that were given this privilege of instructing the people in the things of God. And Jesus is neither from the house of Aaron, nor is he from the tribe of Levi. And he is coming there as one who has authority, coming and cleansing the temple. Now standing in the temple, and he's teaching the people the will of God. So they want to know, who gave you the authority to do this, right? Who gave you, what gives you the right to come into the temple, seeing that you're neither from the high priestly family, you're not from the house of Aaron, the family of Aaron, nor are you from the tribe of Levi. You've not been trained. You're not a part of this system. So by what authority do you do these things? Do you teach and do you cleanse and do you correct us in these things? Now, the problem here is that while it is true that commonly or generally speaking, the primary teachers of the Bible in the Old Covenant were from the tribe of Levi and then chiefly there amongst the family of Aaron, the teaching ministry was not exclusive to those people. That There were extraordinary times when God raised up prophets 
And those prophets came from other tribes, from other families, and that they would come and teach the people, especially whenever the true teachers, the ones that were supposed to be doing this duty, had fallen into disrepute. Whenever they were not doing their duty, then it was necessary for God to, in an extraordinary way, in a peculiar way, to raise up a holy prophet to come and to address the nation, but primarily the teachers and their failure to instruct the people in the will of God. Well, what is the situation that Jesus finds here? Are the teachers, are the vine growers, are they being faithful to tend the vineyard of God? to produce good fruit for God. No, they're doing it for their own benefit. Right? They're not thinking about God in His glory, but themselves. So it was necessary for God to, throughout the history of Israel, raise up prophets who would come and address the people, and then ultimately to send His own Son, to send Him to come as the final authority, the final ultimate revealer, of the will of God, to speak with clarity and finality in His Son. So yes, it is legitimate to ask, by whose authority do you do this? But all authority ultimately comes from who? It ultimately comes from God, and who is Jesus, but God in human flesh. So if they truly understood the identity of Christ, this would be a non-issue for them. They wouldn't be saying this, they would be sitting at His feet and listening the reason they're asking is because of their unbelief, because of their unbelief and their animosity toward him. And this is a trap, right? They're seeking to entrap him in this question by asking him about where his authority comes from. And he knows what they think about him. Sure. If he says that he has his authority from God, then they're going to accuse him of blasphemy, right? They'll, they'll say that you're a blasphemer uh, and you don't have the right and the authority to do this. If he says, I do this on my own authority, then they're going to accuse him of pride and of insurrection and usurping the will of God and what God has established. So this is a no winner for him. There's nothing that he can say that is going to satisfy them because they're not coming honestly. They're not sincere in their question. It's all about a trap. They're trying to trap him and catch him in his words. And ultimately, again, it is the issue of authority. And that issue has been around since the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This issue and these questions concerning authority. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse uh, 29. 28 and 29. This was at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And notice here. It says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Right. So there, even the people were recognizing that the way that he teaches and what he is saying is not like our scribes and Pharisees. He teaches with authority and they don't possess this authority. So already this issue of authority has been Raised, and there is a recognition amongst the people that Jesus does have an authority that is peculiar or unique, different than what they see from their own scribes and Pharisees, those who should be teaching them the Bible. Also, John chapter 12, verse 49. John 12, 49 says, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak, just as the Father has told me. So Jesus is not speaking on His own authority. He is speaking on the authority of His Father. And He's speaking what His Father tells Him to speak. So Jesus is not some rogue, loose cannon out there doing His own thing. But he is doing what his father has sent him to do. He is himself under the authority of his father, and he does only what his father tells him. And there is no authority except from God. Right. He is the only authority. And all authority that exists in the world, legitimate authority, all originates and has its source from God himself. And who is the ultimate then revealer of this authority? His, the Son, right? Only Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate 
one to come in the name of the Father with the authority of the Father and speak His word. So does Jesus have a right to stand up in the temple and to teach the word of God and to proclaim the will of God to the people? Yes, of course He does because He is the true temple of God. Also, if they say, well, you're not a priest, well, He's not a priest after the household of Aaron, but He is a priest after another household, after the order of Melchizedek. And that priesthood is even greater than the priesthood of Aaron. And if they say, well, this is not what Moses taught, he has an authority greater than Moses as well, because he is a greater prophet than Moses. So he can do whatever he wants. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and he has this unique commission from God to come and reveal his will and to speak with authority. They're asking him about this authority. Who gave it to you? What gives you the right to do the things that you're doing, and to get up and speak in this way. Okay, well, Jesus knows it's a trap, and He doesn't fall for it. So verse 24, He turns the tables on them. He says, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. So He's going to ask them a question. You ask me a question, I'll ask you a question. If you answer mine, then I'll answer yours. Okay? And just as they put Him in a no-win situation... He's going to put them in a no-win situation where no matter what they say, they're going to be losers, right? They're going to be losers because they are losers. And then he will put them on the spot in that way. Then verse 25, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? The baptism of John, which encompasses the person of John and the entire ministry of John. John, his ministry, his baptism, his teaching. Was John a prophet of God? Was he sent by God? Did he speak on behalf of God? And was his ministry a true ministry from God? Or was it from men? Meaning, was John a self-proclaimed prophet, a so-called prophet, one who propped himself up as a prophet, proclaimed to be a prophet, and did all of the things that he did, not on the authority of God, but on the basis of his own authority or some other authority. So which one is it? Is John from God or is John from man? He's essentially asking them, was John a true teacher and a true prophet or is he a false teacher and is he a false prophet? Right? And here we see that it's one or the other. Right? The wisdom... The teaching, the ministry, it's either from heaven or it's from earth. If it's from heaven, it is from God. If it is from earth, it is contrary to God, right? It is of the devil. James chapter 3, James 3, 13 to 18. James 3, 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For while jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there is a wisdom from below, that is earthly, natural, and demonic. This would be the wisdom of men. And then there is a wisdom from above that comes down from God. So which one is John? From above or is he from below? Is he a true teacher of God or is he a false teacher masquerading as an angel of light who is actually of Satan? That's what Jesus wants them to answer. So they began to reason among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. Notice here that they have no concern for the truth. Right. right? All they're thinking about is, okay, we need to think about what we say here because we don't want uh, to have fallout. We don't want there to be problems. We know that the people regard John to be a prophet, right? So they know that to be true. Now, do they regard John as a prophet? Obviously not. Obviously not, right? They did not think John's ministry was legitimate 
and that John was a true teacher. And why would they? Because what was the whole focal point of John's ministry? What was the purpose of why he was sent? To prepare the way for the Lord. So the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus are in perfect harmony with one another. So if they hate Jesus and his ministry, as they obviously do, then naturally they hated John and his ministry and they rejected everything that John stood for because the whole purpose of John was to point people to Christ and to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. So they are one together in their ministry. They rejected John and they rejected Jesus. Now, they say here that they, they're reasoning amongst themselves and they're trying to figure out what is the best approach, right? What should we say, right? What should we say that's not going to cause problems? And so they don't have, there's not a solution. If they say John was from heaven, then they rightly know that Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe him? Because obviously they didn't believe him. But if they say that John was from men, then the people are going to cause a riot, right? And they're afraid that the people might even stone them because they all considered John to be a prophet. That is the people. So what is their solution? 27. And then answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. So they play dumb. They play dumb, which is a lie because they do have an opinion, right? They do have a conviction concerning John. And that conviction is, is that John was a false teacher. But they say we don't know because they're just concerned about maintaining their position and their order. They don't want to lose their position in the eyes of the people. That's all that they care about. And this is the way, again, it commonly is. So their own deeds and behavior toward John and Jesus show what they really believe, but they play dumb rather than speak their mind and face the consequences. So that's why they say, I do, we don't know. And so Jesus tells them, well, then neither am I going to tell you. <laughs> not that Jesus is afraid to tell them, not that Jesus hasn't done that, but he's not going to play their game. He's not going to fall into their trap. Okay, you won't answer my question, then I'm not going to answer your question and let you crucify me here on the spot. So I'm not going to answer you. He's under no obligation right, to answer their question, nor does he need their authority and approval to preach the gospel because he has his authority from God. He doesn't need them to give him permission to get up in the temple and preach the gospel because he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And it's already been given to him by God and by Moses, right? Moses knew and understood that when the Christ came, he would be the true prophet of God and he would be the one to teach people the will of God. And he told the people in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, that God would raise up this prophet in the latter days and he's the one that they should listen to. That there would be a greater prophet than Moses. Moses knew that. And he told the people to anticipate him and when he was revealed to listen to him. And yet they refuse to do so. Okay, verse 28. And what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Here, another parable. This parable is, again, describing the situation of what is happening here with the scribes and Pharisees in contrast to the repentant tax collectors and prostitutes. Okay, this is what is happening. The man in the parable is God, right? God is represented by the man and the two sons represent two different types of people. On the one hand, you have the scribes and Pharisees, people who are religious self-righteous hypocrites who pretend, who make a show, right? Who say the right things, but then their actions and their deeds portray their true heart. And then the other group are the tax, tax collectors and the prostitutes who initially, outwardly, right? They say the wrong things and they're doing the wrong things, but then later they repent and they do what is good and right. Now, it's important that we understand that both of them initially are sinners, are sinful, are representing those who are separated from God. The one person, the one son, he hides his sin under a guise of devotion. 
He says to his father, I will, sir. He even uses an honorable title like sir when his father tells him to go work in the vineyard. The other son manifests his rebellion openly, right? Are they both initially faithful or are they both rebellious? Both are rebellious. One gives lip service to being faithful but is rebellious. The other one makes no pretense about it. He is rebellious in even what he says. I'm not going to go, right? He is rebellious in that way. So the first initially says no. There's open defiance of the will of the father. But then later he regrets this defiance and he goes and does the father's will. The second one, there's verbal submission initially. It looks good. It looks promising, but it does not lead to him actually doing the will of the father because he does not go and work in the vineyard. His lips say yes, but his feet say no. That's the situation, the scenario that is presented here. So which of the two did the will of the father? Was it the one who said he was going to, but then did not do it? Or was it the one who said he would not do it, but then regretted it, and then later went and did the will of God? Well, the first person, though his initial response was very grievous, it is a very evil thing for a child to say to his father, I will not do what you tell me to do. That is a great sin. And his initial response was a very grievous sin, but he repented of it. That's the key. He repented, and then he went and did the will of his father. Then 31b. Jesus, they say the first, right? They understand. Obviously, it was the first son, the one who initially said no, but then later went and did it. He's the only one who did the will of the father. Now, what is the application? What is the lesson? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Again, the lesson is that tax collectors and prostitutes are preferable to the scribes and Pharisees, not in their natural state. He cannot mean that practicing tax collectors, practicing prostitutes are better than practicing self-righteous hypocrites. They're all evil, right? They're all destined to hell. But what do we have here with the prostitutes and tax collectors? They repented. They repented of their sins. That's what the first son did. He said, no, I won't go. But then he regretted it. And then he went and did it, which is repentance. He turned from his sin and he went and did the will of God. In the natural state, no. But in the repentant state, Yes, a repentant tax collector is better than a self-righteous Pharisee. A repentant prostitute is better than a self-righteous hypocritical scribe who makes a pretense about how much he loves God, who honors God with his lips, but whose heart is far from him. And were there such tax collectors and sinners who, again, initially were very bold in their sins against God? openly, outwardly, scandalously sinning against God, but who repented and were saved by Christ. Let's see some examples. The first, Luke 3. Luke chapter 3. Luke 3 verses 12 and 13. This is when John the Baptist is preaching the bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke 3.12, some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. So these tax collectors are repentant tax collectors. They're asking him, What should we do? How do we bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And he tells them, Quit collecting more than you're authorized to do. Quit stealing from people and be fair and just in your dealings, in the way that you are dealing with people. Also, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. Luke 5, 27. 
After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. He left everything behind, got up, and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One of his own disciples was a tax collector previously, but he didn't, he repented of that. And then he held a great banquet and had many of his other tax collecting friends come so they could meet Jesus and hear the gospel as well. Another example from Luke, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him and enter the Pharisee's house and recline at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet, and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is, who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Here, it doesn't say exactly what her sin is, but likely she was a prostitute. And yet here she is, showing contrition, humility, love of Christ, Right? And Jesus says that the reason she's doing this is because she's been forgiven much. Well, who's been forgiven of their sins other than Christians, other than believers, other than repentant sinners? She is a repentant sinner, and she is welcomed into the kingdom of God by our Lord Jesus Christ and commended to the face of this Pharisee for her faith and her love and devotion of Christ. One last passage. Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Luke 15, 1 to 2 says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. But the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Here again, tax collectors and sinners. This would be people who are committing scandalous sins. Sins that are notorious, that are stigmatized by the society, that everyone would say, oh, this person is a great sinner. Well, here, these tax collectors and sinners are going to get into the kingdom of God before the scribes and Pharisees. They're entering in, and the scribes and Pharisees, they're going to be left out. Right? They will get in before you do. Why? Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards, so as to believe him. Here, the, uh, John came in the way of righteousness. John's message, his ministry, he was teaching people the way of righteousness. How it is that we can be made righteous in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ and then how to live a righteous life as a result of our salvation, of our conversion. He came as a righteous man of God who was a true prophet of God and proclaimed to people the way of righteousness. And yet, though he was there among them, they did not believe him. The scribes and Pharisees rejected his ministry, but the tax collectors and prostitutes, they did believe him. They believed and they repented, just as we read from these passages earlier. They saw this, the scribes and Pharisees. They also, if they're paying attention, could have seen the change in these people as well. Because when someone repents of their sins, do they remain the same as they used to be? They could have seen the difference in a man like uh, Zacchaeus, who used to be a fraud and a cheat, but now he's not. They could have seen the difference in this notorious sinner 
of Luke chapter 7 that we just read about. She's not doing the things that she used to do. Something has happened to her. She has changed. She's a different woman. They should have seen all of this and then thought and said, maybe there was more to John than what we gave him credit for. Maybe he was a true teacher of God because look, these people who are living these sinful lives, they're not doing that anymore, but now they're living upright lives. They're worshiping God. They're living godly and righteous lives. They saw all of this, what was happening, and then they did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe. They didn't believe initially, and then when they saw the fruit of his ministry manifested above, among them, they had no remorse. They badmouthed him before, they continued to badmouth him, and they did not believe him. Shouldn't the second brother, when he walks past the field and sees his first brother out there working, and he knows the father has given him the same charge as he gave the first brother, shouldn't he have some remorse and know and say instinctively, I need to go out there and work with him instead of slacking off and you know, running around with my friends and having a good time? He should know those things. He should see it and should know and should repent, have some remorse and regret, and go and do what is right. Out of shame, out of a sense of duty and obligation. Well, this was right before them, and yet they did not repent. They refused to repent because of their hard-heartedness. Verse 33. So what are they like? Here is another parable. Another parable. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now here, this parable is, uh, is very clear who he's talking about. Right? If you know your Old Testament, and especially if you know the prophet Isaiah, this is not... He's not speaking in riddles here. And they know at the end exactly who he's talking about from this parable. So Jesus is speaking very plainly and forthrightly with them. This is not a veiled, hidden parable, but it's clear who he's talking about and what he is talking about. And we say that because of Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, the prophet Isaiah uses this exact image to describe what God has done for Israel. And you'll notice in this passage in Matthew, Jesus is using this imagery of a vineyard, of a vineyard, right? He's, he used it in the parable of the two sons. He didn't say the field or wherever else, but he said vineyard. And now he's using vineyard again. And this is because of Isaiah chapter 5, because one of the metaphors or illustrations used in the Old Testament to describe Israel is that they were a vineyard. They were the Lord's vineyard. And everyone knew and understood that that's who, who he's referring to. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to uh, rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress." Israel, the nation, they are the vineyard of the Lord. In that, of all the nations, the world is a wild wasteland. And yet in this one nation, God made them into a vineyard in that He entrusted them with the things of God. 
He gave them many privileges that He did not give to any other nation. In terms of instruction, of worship, the will of God, the way of salvation, all of these things, they were given to them. Right? To them are the things of God. They, the prophets belong to the people of Israel. Moses did not go to the Egyptians. He went to them in judgment, but he did not go there to teach them the will of God and establish them in the right worship of God. God did not send Moses to the Ammonites. He did not send him to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians. Who did he send him to? Only to Israel. And they were given these many privileges, which is described as a vineyard with a wall. It has a tower in it. He did all these wonderful things, removed its stones, put choice vines in it. Everything that they needed to know the way of salvation and to live a godly life and produce good fruit to God was given to them. And yet, what did they repeatedly produce? Not good fruit, but wild, worthless fruit. That was absolutely no good at all. And that's why he's saying, what more could I do for them? God could do no more for them. So what is he going to do? He's going to bring judgment upon them. Judgment, and he's going to tear down this vineyard and let it be what it truly is, which is briars and thorns and thistles. That is what they truly are on the inside. They have the appearance of being a vineyard on the outside, but he's going to make the outside and the inside one and the same, right? By giving them over to judgment. So when he's using this parable of the vineyard, I mean, again, notice, there's the landowner. He plants the vineyard. He puts the wall around it. He dug a wine press in it. He built a tower, right? All of these are what are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 5. The wine press, the tower, the wall, the vineyard. But here he adds another element to it. He rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. The vine growers are the scribes and Pharisees. These are the religious leaders. They are the shepherds of Israel who are supposed to cultivate the people, the vineyard, by teaching the word of God to them so that they repent of their sins and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is what the vine growers who are charged with the spiritual uh, health of the people, like a pastor today, like me over the church. It is my responsibility to teach the word of God so that you know the will of God and then you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But if the vine growers, if the shepherds are not doing their duty, but instead are using the vineyard for their own benefit to give them position so they can make money, so they can live an easy, good, comfortable life without any care for God, for His glory, for the people and them producing fruit in keeping with repentance, then it all is going to fail, right? It's of no good and of no use at all. Well, He gave it to these vine growers and then He went on a journey. God gave this to Israel and then He entrusted the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes, to be the teachers who are to instruct the people in the things of God and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The chief fruit being faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Now, are these vine growers in the days of Jesus, are they pointing the people to put their faith in Christ? They're opposing everything He stands for, right? Which brings us then to verse 34. Verse 34 to 36. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Here, this is the history of Israel. Throughout their history, God sent slaves to the people of Israel in order to receive produce from them. And who are the slaves that he's re referring to here? The prophets. The prophets were raised up by God to go receive fruit, produce, from the people. But when they came to the people, and when they came to those who were entrusted with leadership over the people, what did the leaders do to the prophets? They rejected them. They beat them. They killed them. They rejected them. And they said, no, we're not going to listen to anything that you have to say. And this was a consistent pattern in the history of Israel. They rejected the prophets raised up and sent by God 
for their own benefit, for their own spiritual benefit, because God had compassion on them, and yet they resisted the prophets. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16. Second Chronicles 36, 15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets, until the wrath of God arose against this people, until there was no remedy. God, because of His compassion, sent them prophets time and time again. Right? Because what good is it to have a vineyard if you don't get any fruit out of it? Is the owner of that vineyard going to continue using his resources, giving his time and energy to that vineyard, if he doesn't get any benefit from it? Well, the same with the people. God is not going to tolerate them if they don't produce any good fruit. So he sends the prophets to them to get something out of them for their benefit. Not for his, but it's for them that God does this. But every time he did, they mocked his messengers. They despised his word. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God came upon them. Also, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, 26 to 31. 26 to 31. Nehemiah 9, 26 says, But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who had admonished them, so that they might return to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion, and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly, and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder, and stiffened their neck, and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years, and admonished them by your spirit, through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. So again, Nehemiah recounting the history of Israel. This is after the exile of Babylon, that this is what happened repeatedly over and over and over again. They would not listen to the prophets of God. Then one final passage would be Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, this is Stephen, has the same testimony. Acts 7, verse 51 to 53. says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. So this is what was happening in Israel through the years. God sent slaves after slave after slave, messenger after messenger to them, admonishing them, telling them to repent. He would bring judgments upon them, but then would restore them and bring them back. And then they would go away astray again, and He would send a prophet to them, and then another judgment would come, and sometimes those judgments would be even more and more intense, such as the Babylonian exile, which was uh, the culmination of many years of disobedience and the great judgment against them in the Old Testament period. But even after that Babylonian exile, what did God do? He brought them back. He restored them again and was compassionate with them. They continued to have 
the things of God, and God continued to work amongst them in some regard throughout all of these years. Then verse 37. But afterwards he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So who is the son? Well, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. He sent them prophets, which were messengers from God, but they were not the messenger of God. Not in this regard. The Son has come in the name of the Father. Surely they will listen to the Son. Now, is there doubt in God's mind as to what they're going to do? No, no of course not. He's using this parabolic language to describe the situation. But God has ordained all of this, and God knows exactly how all of it is going to play out. Right? So it's not a surprise or something that God had hoped that they would listen. And then because they didn't, He didn't know what to do. So we'll just go and try to save the Gentiles. All of this is a part of the will and plan of God. However, He does ultimately send the Son to the people of Israel as a manifestation of their hardness of heart, their unbelief, and the judgment of God that's going to come upon them. What do they do when the sun comes? They, the vine growers see the sun. Now again, it's not that the vineyard has no responsibility or the people have no responsibility, but the instigators of the rebellion and of the rejection of Christ, it was the scribes and Pharisees. It was the religious leaders who were the instigators of this. Now all the people had a share in responsibility and the judgment of God came upon the whole nation, but they are uniquely responsible because they are the ones charged with instructing the people in the will of God. And they should be telling the people about the coming Christ and to put their hope in Him. And then when He was revealed, they should have been the first in line. And they should have told everyone, this is the one that we've been preaching to you about. You should trust in Him for salvation. But they're not doing that because they don't want to lose their place. They don't want to lose their position. And we know that a lot of what's motivating the scribes and Pharisees against Christ is jealousy. They're jealous of Him because the people regard Him as one with authority. And the people are not listening to them, but they're going and listening to Christ. Right. So it's not about truth. It's their own position. They're afraid of losing their vineyard, losing their position. But it's not theirs to begin with. The vineyard does not belong to them. It belongs to God. And they are to use it and to use their position there for His glory. But they're not doing that. They're doing it for themselves. And this leads them to conspire against the heir and kill him and let's seize his inheritance. So they do that. They throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him. <laughs> this is as it says in John 1, 11. He came to his own people and yet his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him, but they rejected Christ. Okay, verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers, who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Here, he lets them hang themselves. He asks them the question, what is the owner going to do to those vine growers? And then they supply the answer. Yep. He's going to take those wretched and bring them to a wretched end and then give that vineyard to someone else, to vine growers who will do the will of God, who will give him the produce in season. And there is a finality when what they do to Christ, yep. right? Up until this time, yes, they rejected many prophets and they, they misbehaved and they treated them very poorly. But God did not give them over to judgment in a sense of finality like He did when they rejected Christ. All of the blood of the prophets come upon this generation. And then from the time of Christ onward, there is a difference in that what was entrusted to Israel, God takes away from them and then He gives it to someone else. And who does He give it to? He gives it to the Gentiles. That vineyard is taken away from them and is entrusted to the Gentiles. Again, not that no Jews are going to be saved after the time of Christ, but now salvation is mostly amongst the Gentiles. Before, it was mostly amongst the Jews. 
and a few Gentiles here and there. Now it is mostly amongst the Gentiles because God took the vineyard away from them. He didn't do that in the past when they rejected the prophets. But when they rejected the son, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And he has taken it from them and has given it now to the Gentiles. This is as the apostle teaches in Romans chapter 11. This is what the whole chapter of Romans 11 is about. Romans chapter 11, and we'll start reading in verse 1. He says, I say then, has God rejected His people? Has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how He pleased with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there also has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous." Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. But you will say, branches were broken off, so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand in your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fail, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion, and He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake." But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you at once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that He may show mercy to all. So, their branches were broken off and then the wild olive branches were grafted in in their place. And the wild olive branches are the Gentiles. The Gentiles have come in through their rejection. They rejected it and therefore now the Gentiles are coming in. That's what he means here. When they say he will take it away, they say he will take it away from those wretcheds and bring them to a wretched end and give it to others. And isn't that what God did? Yeah. He did that in AD 70 when he completely obliterated and annihilated the nation of Israel. 
He destroyed their temple. He destroyed their land. He took their nation away. And they were a people without any nation for many, many, many years. He completely took all of that away from them. And he gave it to someone else. And that is the Gentiles. Okay, verse 42. Now, people might say, surely not. And actually they say that in Luke. Surely not. This would never happen. But Jesus says to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here, this should not be shocking that this would happen, because the stone that the builders rejected, and who are the builders? The builders are the same as the vine growers here. They are the religious leaders of Israel. They rejected Jesus Christ. They said, this stone is worthless. It's trash. We can't do anything good with it. We can't build anything with it. They rejected that stone. But what did God make Jesus? He made him the chief cornerstone. The stone that the whole building is built upon is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And isn't this true of the household of faith? We are built upon Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone that the whole building, the whole household resides and rests upon Jesus Christ alone. They rejected him, but God has made him the chief cornerstone. And this came about from whom? From the Lord, right? The Lord is the one who did this. God the Father is the one who ordained this to be the case, that he would be rejected amongst his own people. And then by his rejection that leads to his death and his resurrection, he would then be made the cornerstone upon which the whole house of God is built. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Whose eyes? The eyes of those who have faith. He is marvelous in our eyes. He is despised in their eyes, but He is marvelous in our eyes. Isn't this the case as well? To the one, it is a fragrance of life unto life. To the other, a fragrance of death unto death. This is the way it is. You have to have eyes to see it. And they did not have eyes, but we do. And so He is marvelous. This is a quote from Psalm 18.22 and Isaiah 28.16, right? Those two passages combined here in Matthew 21.42. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. The kingdom, the knowledge of salvation, right? The proper way to worship God, to live a life pleasing to God. All of this that has been entrusted to Israel for so many years, from Moses up to this point, it's going to be taken away from you and it's going to be given to someone else, to the Gentiles who will produce fruit. God's going to produce fruit in them. Again, not amongst all the Gentiles. Not every Gentile is going to believe. But amongst the believing Gentiles, God will do this great work amongst some of them. Acts 13 Acts 13, verse 44. Acts 13, 44 to 52. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. There it is. We're we're going to the Gentiles Paul and Barnabas say. And then when the Gentiles hear this, what do they do? They rejoice. Isn't that good fruit? Rejoicing that the Word of God is coming to us. And they are believing. Those who are appointed unto eternal life are believing. It's producing fruit among them. It's taken away from you and it will be given to them. We're not in Paul and them. We're not going to minister among you anymore. We're not going to work among you anymore. We're going to go to the Gentiles because we'll have some eager listeners there. Whereas all you want to do is fight with us, contradict us, try to kill us. So we're not going to work with you anymore. Okay, then verse 44. 
He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Here, this rejection of the cornerstone is not without consequence. Right? The one that falls on the stone, they, they stumble over the stone, who is Christ. Well, if you stumble over Christ, and they stumble over His sufferings, but isn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer for our salvation? He has to suffer. Well, if you stumble over that, you're going to be broken to pieces. And then if this cornerstone falls on you, it will scatter you like dust. One way or the other. Either you fall on Him or He falls on you. But the end is what? For, for the person who rejects Him. It is destruction. It is destruction and eternal ruin and misery. Then verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard His parables, they understood that He was speaking about them. When they sought to seize Him, they feared the people because they considered Him to be a prophet. So they know full well who He's talking about. They know that He's talking about them, and they don't like it. So they want to seize Him and kill Him, but they can't do it because of the people. Just as they consider John a prophet, they also consider Jesus a prophet. And if they do this in the broad daylight then they might have a riot, an insurrection on their hands, and then the Romans might come and take their nation away. And they're afraid of that. That's why they have to do it in the middle of the night, as they eventually do, whenever everyone is asleep and they can get away with their evil deeds of darkness. Okay, so I know we covered a lot of ground there, um, but there's a lot to say. I'll give you one other cross-reference that you can look up for your own. This is Isaiah 8, 13 to 18. Isaiah 8, 13 to 18 is the one who falls on the stone. Will be shattered to pieces. 